So we are going to have a sermon, believe it or not, this morning. And if you've got a Bible, pull it out. We are in Joshua and we've been working through Joshua for uh, many weeks. It's sort of been off and on a little bit with circumstances and things that have happened, but we've been plugging away. And now we're on the home stretch in Joshua. We're in chapter 20 today. Only four messages left in Joshua, including this one. So we really are at the end. But uh, some of the best stuff, I think, in Joshua is at the end of the book. And if you need a small recap, you seem really sleepy today. Are you right? I'm, I'm tired. I was going to say I have an excuse, but I don't really. Yet. He's not even home. I'm just getting used to being tired, just practicing. But uh, are you okay? Are you, are you comfortable? All right. Good. So we'll continue. Uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua, quick recap. It's the story of the Israelites coming into the land of Canaan, conquering the land of Canaan. We've looked at how when Joshua began, they were still outside Canaan. They, they, they were on the other side of the Jordan River and, and we've, we've watched and we've journeyed with them as they've crossed the river and they've taken Jericho and they took the city of Ai. Uh, you might remember Achan's sin that affected the whole community and was a huge setback and and disrupted them and led to defeat in battle. Then they overcame that. Uh, we, we looked as the Israelites had that incident with the Gibeonites. They entered into that treaty, that covenant foolishly with the Gibeonites. Uh, and then the way God turned that around and gave them this huge victory on the day, the sun stood still in the sky and they had a huge success in battle. And that led to seven years. It's been seven years of a long, gruesome military campaign as Israel has worked its way around southern Canaan and then northern Canaan. And then Joshua's allotted all the lands to the various tribes of Israel. And we listened in a couple of weeks ago on this interaction with Joshua and Caleb and the the special allotment of land that Caleb had because of his faithfulness. So we're just about done. But one of the things that happens once Joshua has divvied up all the land, most of the land, is he allocates some special cities for some special purposes. Joshua 21, 20 and 21 are taken up with these special allocations. And one of them is called the cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. Uh, it wasn't a new idea. The cities of refuge crop up in Exodus and in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. God had spoken already to Moses saying that when the Israelites came into Canaan, this is what was to happen. So Joshua didn't invent the idea. He was carrying out orders uh, in terms of setting these cities up. And finally, the time has come to establish these things called the cities of refuge. Uh, six cities around Canaan and just outside are designated as cities of refuge. And the idea of the cities of refuge emerges from this ancient uh, system of justice in the ancient world. Before this time, the, the way that things had worked was this. If a person took the life of another person, if a person committed an act of homicide, whether it was done intentionally, whether it was done unintentionally, what would happen is that the family of the victim would get together, they'd have a big conference, and they would appoint a member of their family, and they would designate that person as what was called the goel, the Goel. And the Goel translated is avenger of blood. It's not a, not a particularly nice term, but the avenger of blood. And that person was charged with seeking retribution on behalf of the family, on behalf of the victim's family, for 
the crime that had been committed. And this would mean death. So the Goel, their mission in life became to take the life of the accused. Either themselves, if they had the skills of hunting, or they could appoint someone else to do it, hire a hitman, or they could possibly try and work it through the, 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 the legal system and, and drag this guy before the court of Israel and, and, and have him sentenced to death. But often the Goel would just be this private vigilante who would go out and take the life of this person who had killed one of their family members. It's a pretty primitive system of justice, and you can probably pick up already there's numerous problems with a system like that. It's very simplistic. The biggest problem, of course, is that it doesn't distinguish between different types of homicide. It doesn't distinguish between an accidental killing and something that's premeditated, planned, with motive. The Goel never distinguished any of that. The only thing they were charged with doing, you've taken a life over here, I'm going to take your life. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's how it was. And so God designs the system and he implements it through Joshua. Once Israel's in the land, once their economy is working, once there's a need for a justice system, a judicial system. And these cities of refuge were designed to deal with a particular type of homicide, which we would call today involuntary manslaughter. Because in our modern criminal justice system, we, we demarcate different types of homicide. But in the book of Joshua and in these ancient times, there were only two types of homicide. There was murder, and that would be the same as what we would call murder today, something that is premeditated, something that is done with malice, something that has motive, a deliberate taking of life. The Jews would call that murder. Our justice system today would call that murder. And then you have the second category, which is described in Joshua 20 with language like accidental killing, without malice, a forethought. And we would call this today involuntary manslaughter. So the classic example today would be uh, the guy who uh, drinks, gets intoxicated, gets in a car, has a car accident, kills someone else. He didn't intend to take the life, but his actions led in that direction. So that would be involuntary manslaughter. Now, it doesn't mean there's not negligence. It doesn't mean there's no fault. It doesn't mean there's no culpability. But it means there was no intent to kill. That make sense? Now, in our modern criminal law, interestingly, we insert another category, which the Jews never recognized, category of voluntary manslaughter. And this is what uh, Clayton Weatherston's lawyer tried to argue with a defense like provocation or crime of passion. So there is no premeditated intent to kill. But in the moment, the action is deliberate and there is an intent to kill the person. It's voluntary manslaughter, but it's distinguished from murder because it's not premeditated. Interestingly, ancient Jewish system never recognized that category. For them, it was murder or it was involuntary manslaughter, except they didn't call it that. So the little, that's the context of the justice system as it worked in ancient Judaism. And these cities of refuge dealt with this category of involuntary manslaughter. And how it worked is this. If you accidentally took the life of another person and, 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 and you killed them but you didn't mean to. What you could do 
is you could flee to the nearest one of these cities of refuge and they were spaced out through Canaan equally so that you would be in some sort of proximity to one of them and you would take off pretty fast because you would know that the goel of the family, the victim's family, was coming to get you pretty quickly. They would already have been appointed and they were on your trail and so you would move quick. You would go to the city of refuge and when you got there, here's what you'd do. You'd stand at the city gates and you'd call for the elders of the city. And the elders would come and they would give you some sort of provisional hearing. They would hear your case. They would hear your testimony. And they would decide whether they believed your story, that this was an accidental killing. It was completely unintentional. It was done without any malice. There was no motive. There was no premeditation. Or they would decide that they think this was intentional, that you are actually guilty. Now, if they found you guilty they would forbid you to come into the city. You wouldn't be allowed in, and you'd be on your own. You see, the the cities of refuge provided no protection for the guilty. They offered nothing to you if you had committed murder. But if you had committed involuntary manslaughter, the elders would take you in, and they would harbor you within the city where you would be safe, where the goel could not reach you. And you would be in the city of refuge until such a time as you stood trial. And you'd stand trial then back in your hometown probably, in front of the entire assembly, which is like the high court of Israel. You'd be taken in front of the high court and you'd have your case properly tried. There'd be witnesses, your testimony, others' testimony. The elders would hear it. It would be a trial. They would listen. And then at the end of that, they would determine whether you were, in fact, they could go against the ruling of the elders and decide that actually you are guilty, in which case, again, you're pushed outside the city. You're on your own. The goel's going to get you. Or worse, maybe you would just they would sentence you to execution themselves. Or they could uphold the ruling of the elders and decide, yes, this was an accidental killing. This was involuntary manslaughter. You didn't mean to. There was no uh, premeditation. This is not murder. If that's the case, they would allow you back to stay in the city of refuge. You'd return there. It wasn't your home, probably. It might not have been the city you wanted to live in and raise your kids in, but you and probably your family would move to the city of refuge and that's where you would stay. Safe from the goel who couldn't get you in the city, but you'd have to stay there. You'd have to work there. You'd have to settle down there. That's that's your lot, but at least your life would be spared. Now, you would stay in the city of refuge. There's one thing that could happen that would enable you to leave, and this was the death of the high priest. Is there a buzzing noise? Some sort of... Is that my microphone? There's a gremlin in the system. I was going to say demon, but I don't want to go that far. Should I do something to sort it out or should I just plow on? All right. Just let me know if it keeps happening. We can, we're a pretty relaxed bunch here. We can take time out. Early morning tea, whatever we need. Oh, we'll cut that bit out of the TV program. <laughs> Sean? <clears throat> so there's one thing that could happen that would let you come out of the city of refuge safely, securely. And that was the death of the high priest ruling in Israel at the time. This is really interesting. And it tells you something about the role that the high priest played. When he died, you would be able to leave the city of refuge and the goel would no longer seek your life. Because in some way, and it's not spelled out in the text, but in some sense, the high priest's death, the high priest's blood became 
a sacrifice for the crime that had been committed. The high priest, somehow his death, his blood, symbolically removed the guilt that was associated with this crime. Even though it was unintentional, there was still that sense of guilt. A crime had been committed. Blood had been spilt in Israel. But the high priest's death was this symbolic, sacrificial, substitutionary idea that would cover the guilt. And apparently the Goel knew this. Because when the high priest died, the accused could leave the city of refuge. The Goel would no longer seek his life. He would, the Goel would accept the high priest's sacrifice. He would accept that blood had been spilt, guilt had been removed, and he would stand back. And, and as far as he was concerned, retribution had been accomplished. Now, as you listen to that, some of you that have read the New Testament, you're already hearing it, aren't you? You're already hearing where this is going and the way in which it points further ahead in the story. This is the unbelievable thing about looking in the Old Testament in a book like Joshua and seeing the way that it points forward toward Jesus. That so many things in the Old Testament, every institution, every character, every ordinance in the life of Israel is like a massive signpost pointing towards Jesus. And one of the great names and the great identities Jesus assumes in the New Testament is that of High priest. He is the great high priest who takes into himself the role of all the high priests ever been and he succeeds them all and he eclipses them all and he is the ultimate high priest. Listen to the way, you don't need to turn there, but just listen to the way that the book of Hebrews describes Jesus as the high priest and see if in your mind you can connect this to the role of the high priest in Israel. Hebrews 7.26 Such a high priest, talking about Jesus, truly meets our need. One who was holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So you you hear the way that Jesus' death works. And this, and this link between the high priest in Israel and Joshua's day and Jesus the high priest. Just as Joshua's high priest, his blood was spilt and it covers over the guilt of the accused. Jesus the high priest dies and his blood covers over all the guilt that you and I incur. All of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our failure, all of our stuff-ups and screw-ups and mess-ups in life, all taken away because of the blood of our high priest. This incredible parallel is here. Jesus' death removes all that culpability, all of that blame, all of the guilt that you and I rightfully deserve to have heaped on our heads. We are now free. We're like the accused man. The high priest dies and now he is free. He's free to go. Imagine the response of the accused person when he heard that the high priest has died. And much as he might mourn for that loss of life, it's incredibly liberating for him because now he can leave the city of refuge. He's free. There's no longer a price on his head. No one's seeking his life. He's free. That's what has happened, friends, with the death of Jesus. You see what light this casts on the work of Christ. You see how this forms an incredible backdrop to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And here is the crucial difference between Jesus and the high priest of the Old Testament. The cities of refuge and the high priest 
only dealt with sins that were unintentional. They only covered the accidents. They only covered the involuntary manslaughter. But how is this different to Jesus? His death, his sacrifice covers every single thing you and I can do that would ever dishonor God. Not just the accidental stuff and the unintentional stuff, but including and especially our intentional sin. Because we are deliberate sinners, let's be honest. Not just accidental sinners, we're deliberate All those times that we push God away, that we want to do it on our terms, we force him into our mold, our agenda, my time, my way, my rules, thanks very much, God, and we reduce him down and down and down. All of that stuff, Jesus' death is taken care of as well. He deals not only with the innocent, but with the guilty, with those who stand condemned rightfully. That's you and I. And his death has taken away that shame, and taken away that guilt so that we can go free. This is the liberating truth of the gospel. And here's what this opens up for us. That Jesus is not just our high priest in the sense that he's died on our behalf, but he now becomes our city of refuge. Jesus fulfills what these cities of refuge were in Joshua's day. See, in Joshua's day, if you went into the city of refuge, it was good because your life was spared, but it was bad because you were living far from home and you could never escape. Ultimately, what you wanted is to get out of the city of refuge and still be free without fear of your life. But with Christ, having died for us, having shed his blood, he opens up a way to be, he makes himself available to us as our city of refuge the one to whom we can come and the one whom we never have to leave, nor should we want to, because he is that safe harbor for us. He's the one who's released us from the penalty of our own wrongdoing, the penalty of our own sin, and now he provides freedom and security. And he does it in both an objective and a subjective sense. There's that objective sense in which we flee to Christ. Hebrews 6 talks about fleeing to the hope that is set before us. Those of us who have fled to take hold of the hope that's set before us. I can't help thinking that in the author's mind, maybe there's an allusion there to the cities of refuge. We are those who have fled from something, from danger, from insecurity, from our own wrongdoing, from our own self-centered, self-preoccupied existence, and we've fled to someone Christ, our city of refuge, the one who offers us security, the one who offers us safety from sin, the one who offers us freedom, the one who offers us forgiveness. We have fled to take hold of that hope. And all those of us who have done this, who have gone through this process, this journey of fleeing to Christ, what this should do is breathe tremendous hope and tremendous security into our lives. You're not out on your own anymore. You're not wandering around in fear of your life. You don't have the penalty of your own sin hovering over your head. You don't have to worry about the consequences of your own wrongdoing. Even though we pursue holiness, God no longer holds that scoreboard over our head, but you're free. You're liberated. You are living, if you've come to Christ, you're living within that city of refuge. It's not a place, it's a person. It's Christ. This is why Paul the Apostle talks about his favorite expression for Christians is those who are in Christ. 
That's why he uses that spatial language of being in Christ. He's sort of, sort of picturing Christ as a space in which you can reside. I think this is what he's getting at. This Old Testament idea, city of refuge, you can be in this city. Now we are in Christ. What should this do for our hearts? I think breathe a bit of security, confidence. We can stand firm and stand strong knowing that we're not in danger of our lives. We have no fear. We have no need to worry, but we're safe and secure in Christ. And then there's that sense in which this works itself out in our lives day by day. That as those who are living in the city, as those who are in Christ, who are dwelling in this city of refuge, as we walk through valleys, as we go through dark times or even just dark days and dark moments, we have one who we can cling to continually as our refuge. Not just in this objective, legal sense, but in a subjective, in that sense of someone who will speak hope to us, someone who will be a refuge, who will be a strength, even in the frustration, even in the heartache that you go through, even in the pain, that we have someone we can go to with that stuff. We have somewhere we can take that stuff. These last couple of weeks, I feel like um, Anna and I have kind of experienced every emotion in the book. You know, it's been so up and down and the, and the, the anxiety of wondering, is the birth going to be okay and is he going to be all right? And then the elation of he's fine and he's good and he's safe. And then having uh, Joshua whisked away to the special care unit. And again, then the anxiety sets in and is everything okay and is he going to be all right? And the frustration of things not moving as fast as you would like. And then the, the, the toughness of leaving the hospital without him and having to, to be at home and just feeling that distance. And there have just been times in the past week where Anna especially has just felt so much that distance of being away and you're not there when he wakes up and you're not there when he cries. And uh, that, that's difficult. But then there's that incredible wonder and sense of, man, we have a son who's comparably very, very healthy. And all of that roller coaster. And we've needed somewhere to take all of that the good as well as the bad, some, some, somewhere to go with all of those feelings, especially the difficult feelings. And this is where Christ has been such a refuge to us. He has been a place. And we're covered by that city of refuge in that objective sense, and that's wonderful. But subjectively, as we walk through our lives, to know that he is the one I can go to. I don't have to carry this around by myself. I don't have to fend for myself. I'm not alone, but I can take everything I'm feeling, my aching soul sometimes, I can take this to my city of refuge. I can take this to Christ and I can lay it down and I can cast my anxiety on him because he cares for me, because he loves me. And my, the cross is my city of refuge. It's a place where I can go and it's a place where I can find safety. And some of you need that this morning, things that you're going through. You need somewhere, someone, and we have one. We have Christ who is standing here inviting us to come and enter into that city of refuge. And as you do that, as you, as you, and often it's just being still. I know for me there have been times in the past week when it, it's been difficult to even to, to pray or to even actively do a lot, but just to be there with Christ and allow him to minister to you and allow him to speak to you of his love and just allow him to hold you is so incredibly powerful. And it may be that you need 
to simply be still in the presence of Jesus and just see him as that city of refuge for you and bring that fear and allow him to slowly turn that into hope and to bring the anxiety and to gradually allow him to turn that into peace and to bring that aching soul maybe that you have this morning, grief or loss, and to allow him to turn that to rest. This is a concept that goes hand in hand with Christ is our refuge. Christ is our rest. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's an amazing thing to simply rest in the presence of Jesus. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. It's not about working harder, trying better, or earning more brownie points. It is about resting. It's about seeing Christ as your solace, your resting place. And there are some of you this morning, in all of your tiredness, that might just need to come to Christ and rest in Him. And just find that rest and just allow Him to speak to you those words of love and of hope and of refuge. And so we're going to sing a few songs in a moment and we're going to take communion in a little while. But as we sing this next song, I want to give you an opportunity that if there's stuff going on in your life, that you need to come to Christ and find refuge there. And perhaps you've just been battling it out, slogging it out, trying to solve your own problems and do your own thing. And you realize today you need to find your refuge in Christ. You need to allow him to be a refuge, to be that city of refuge for you. I want to invite you to come to the front. Our elders will be up here. There's people that can pray with you. You might just want to sit by yourself and pray quietly. You might want to kneel at the foot of the cross. You might want someone else just to lay a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. You don't have to divulge your inner secrets. It's not a magic pathway coming up here, but it can be a symbolic action of coming to Christ, coming to that city of refuge, saying, I'm not going to find solace anywhere else. I'm not going to find rest anywhere else. My soul, St. Augustine said, my soul is restless till it finds its rest in thee. That is the posture of our heart. It's the posture of our soul. We were created for Christ, for him to be our refuge. And so find it today. It's here. He's here and he's making himself available to you. So if you'd like to come forward, of course you don't have to, but if you'd like to, just as we sing this next song, Ben, come on up, uh, and we'll sing this song. Come forward if you'd like to pray by yourself or with someone else, and then we'll share in communion together.